verse 11 through uh, 28. Verse 11. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. Lord, I want to thank you for just want to thank you so much gosh you gave your son to die for us to cover our sins with his blood Father God we thank you I ask Lord please that uh, 
you fill our hearts with your Holy Spirit today. Let him come down open our minds and, and our hearts and all that we have to you. Lord, bless Pastor Jackie as he, as he explains your word to us. Father God, praise be your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. you remember last time we were here I told you these last couple of paragraphs in chapter 9 deal with the concept that I like to call eternal redemption or ultimately God's redemption of mankind. The fact that all those things that went before, the old examples, the old illustrations that men lived out uh, became types or pictures of an eternal redemption wrought in Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is really all that we need. And so we talked, we, we kind of broached the, the first subject, which was the power of the blood last week. And remember, the power of the blood, it redeems us. The blood of Jesus Christ is eternal. It's not a, a continuous sacrifice. It's once for all. Jesus gave His blood. It has been obtained. It accomplished what it was sent to do. And it did so by grace. We also saw that it it involved the Spirit of God because it was by His eternal Spirit. It involved substitution because it was Him offering Himself. It involved His sinlessness, a perfect sacrifice, without spot, without blemish. And it involves our service, our response, like Corey was, uh, was talking about in worship, our looking unto God and seeing His worthiness for, for what He's wrought for us. In verse 15 it says, Therefore He's the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So what do we see? Remember, Jesus is the executor. He accomplishes what Jesus did. He's the executor of the will. He's the mediator. He's the one that stands between man and God. Scripture lays out for us in 1 Timothy 2.5, There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Hebrews 8.6 told us, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is way much more excellent than, than the old, as the covenant He mediates is better, since it's enacted on better promises. It's not if you, then I, it's all. I will, I will, I will. Hebrews 12.24 says, And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See, the blood of Abel we read about in, in Revelation chapter 6, we look underneath the altar and we see the blood of the martyrs crying out to God, How long, O Lord, till you'll avenge? What is it that the blood of Abel cried out? Avenge me. The Lord, when He came to Cain, said... Your blood, your, the blood of your brother cries out to me. Cries out to me. But the blood of Jesus Christ speaks better things. Better things. Not avenge. It speaks redemption. And so that's what we were looking at last week. This concept of redemption. He's taken away our sin. He substituted Himself for us. He stepped in for me. He bore the wrath of God. 
and he was without sin. So what do I receive? An eternal inheritance. Once it's given, it's given. Once we receive it, it has been received. So what's the prerequisite? Well, this is the next, the next paragraph that we're looking at here in Romans, in this section from 11 to 28. That begins in verse 16. It's the prerequisite of His death, the prerequisite of our Lord's death. Look what it says, verse 16. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. Okay, now, there's, there will be an everlasting argument between now and the time when all the- theologians get to heaven, or at least all the theologians that are going to go to heaven get to heaven, about whether or not the word here is will or covenant. So I'll briefly kind of lay it out for you, but the end of the result, it doesn't matter. Either way, what's being said is, when a covenant, when people cut covenant, when Abraham made a covenant with God, you remember back in Genesis, what happened? Abraham killed what? Several animals, cut them in half, right? Opened them up. And he was so busy shooing off the birds, waiting for whatever was going to take place, that he falls asleep. He's wore out, he falls asleep, and God in a vision, passes in the midst. In order for a covenant to be established, blood had to be shed. That's the point. Every covenant required blood. Now, whether or not the word here is covenant or will, it's, it's, it could be, the word means both in the, in the Greek. So it could go either way. But the same way, if I have a last will and testament, when does it work? When I die. Before I die, there's no point in the will. So that's what I mean. Theologians get together and argue sometimes about things that the end result still remains the same? What's the point of it all? The prerequisite was Jesus had to die. He was either the death, the substitutionary death, just like an animal would die for a covenant in that culture. Jesus Christ was the substitutionary death that would die in order to establish this. So it says in verse 17, For a will takes effect, or a covenant takes effect, only at death. Since... It is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. So we see there's a prerequisite. Jesus had to die. Verse 18, Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and of goats and water, scarlet, wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled the book itself and all the people. So he marked all the people. What's the significance? Because in a covenant... A covenant was established by something dying. The idea of a covenant was this promise, this covenant that we're making is so important. We're taking it so sincerely that that it, it requires a death in order to establish it. It means the idea is before I break this covenant, may this happen to me. Before you break this covenant, may this happen to you. And so what was done was that animal that gave its life so that the covenant could be established, they would take the blood, not because the blood was valueless, but because the blood had incredible value, they would take it and use it to mark all the people that you're covered in the blood. What they did is an illustration for the reality that takes place in Christ. Because in Christ, the reality is, if I'm not covered by the blood, I'm not His. If, I, if God doesn't look at me and see the blood of His Son, all He sees is a rebellious sinner who is destined for hell. But if He sees the blood of His Son, I'm covered in His covenant. His promise stands for me. 
So this was sprinkled. The, the scripture lays out for us. That this is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled the, both the tent and the vessels everywhere they went, everywhere they worshipped. It was all about the blood. It was all about the blood of that which died so that the covenant could be enforced. So when we understand that all the old is a picture so that we can understand and recognize the new, it tells us that the blood of Jesus Christ has accomplished the same thing. So we see the power of the blood and the, prere- the prerequisite. What was that? that? That the Lord had to die. You can't get that blood another way. <clears throat> Look at verse 22. For indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. For without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. There's no remission. Now why does it say almost? Well, it's talking about the law. And under the law, almost all things were cleansed with blood. There were a few things that were cleansed with water. But the point that he's making is not the first part where he says, in the law, almost all things. But he says, now we step away from the law, you need to understand that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. No remission. We're not right with God apart from the blood of Jesus Christ. He died and gave His blood for you and I. What's it say in Matthew 26, 28? It says, Jesus standing, proclaiming to the disciples this very thing that we're talking about. He said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is the blood. This. They were, they were drinking a cup at Passover. And he's saying, This represents my blood, which in a few short hours is going to be shed. It's going to be shed. In Matthew 26, 28, it says there, which is poured out for many. What you don't see is a definite article. It's poured out for the many, a specific group. What specific group? The specific group that believes, for all who believe. The blood of Christ is efficacious. It accomplishes something in your life. For everyone who believes the blood of Christ washes you, right? Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness with the shedding of blood there is where is the blood applied how is the blood applied we look at the old testament for the same kind of picture yom kippur big day sacrifice the day of atonement one goat led out into the <coughs> to the wilderness upon which all the sins were confessed another goat gives its life dies it was for the sins of the nation But it didn't accomplish anything in an individual's life until that individual saw the sacrifice, recognized that this is God's plan and purpose for me, and he brought his. And when he brought his, then he was saved by the blood of the Lamb. If he didn't bring his, hold on to this because it's going to matter in a moment. If he didn't bring a sacrifice, it was called willful sinning. You heard that phrase before? I don't know if we'll get into it next week, but we're coming. It's coming like a freight train. But what's the idea of willful sinning? Not applying the blood of the sacrifice personally. Not applying the blood of the sacrifice personally. We'll come back to that, but I just want you to understand that Jesus Christ, it's His blood that brings the forgiveness of sin. Revelation 1.5, on Wednesday nights we've been working our way through the book of Revelation. It says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead, the ruler over the kings on earth, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins. How? 
by his blood. The blood of Jesus Christ makes me clean. But it has to be applied. The blood of Jesus Christ washes us clean. So that's the prerequisite of the death of Jesus Christ, which ushers in or begins, constitutes the beginning of the new covenant. <clears throat> now in verse 23 through, we're going to see a section of scripture that deals with three appearances. Now, every once in a while in the Greek, interesting things happen. I, I try not to bore you too much with things that are only interesting for me. And However, this is possible to be one of those things. But three times we're going to see the word appear as we look, work our way in English through this text. And each one of those three words is a different word in the Greek, and it means different things. So we'll highlight them as we come across them. But what we're looking at here, this, this last section of chapter 9, we're looking at the present, we're going to see the present appearance of the Messiah, the past appearance of the Messiah, and the future appearance. So we'll look at those as we work our way through. Let's look, verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. Now you remember what we've been talking about for several weeks is that those things which came before were illustrations or pictures so that we could understand the fulfillment in Christ. And that's exactly what, what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. Right? Those things, the copies of the heavenly things, those earthly things, remember Moses sprinkled them with blood. The copies were sprinkled, and it's a sign. What does that mean? That means that something also happened heavenly, right? Something else happened in the reality. For the copies of the heavenly things were purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices. The Bible says the blood of bulls and goats couldn't really accomplish anything. It was an illustration. What really accomplished things, the heavenly sacrifice, was the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ finally, completely paves the way. For verse 24, it says, For Christ has entered, <coughs> not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Now to appear. That word appear means to declare plainly or publicly. To be seen publicly. So now he's showing us, he's declaring to us in the presence of God on our behalf these things. What are these things? Okay, first, the pattern of heavenly things had to be cleansed. Why? Why has heaven got to be cleansed? We just think about it a little bit. The scripture tells us that there is a being in the heavens, still today, he's there, has access to God who accuses the brethren night and day. Revelation 12 has not occurred. We'll see that when we, in our study on Wednesday as we get to Revelation 12. Revelation 12 is the day when Jesus looks over at Michael the archangel and says, get that guy out of here. But until then... There is an accuser of the brethren. Satan has access to God. You read the book of Job. What does it say? The sons of God were, were coming before the Lord, presenting themselves before the Lord, and Satan came. And, he, and the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That's how that whole concept begins. That whole contest between uh, Job and the devil. So when we look at it, we see that, that Satan and his rebellion has, has stained heaven. And also we realize that a sin 
A, a human being who is in reality filled with sin, you and I in reality filled with sin, covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, could not enter in. We could not go to heaven until that sin had been dealt with. And so the blood of Jesus Christ needed to cleanse the heavenly things and pave the way. Ultimately, we also see not only the pattern of heavenly things, but the place Messiah entered. Where did he enter? He didn't enter a building. Where did he enter? Into heaven itself. That's what it says, right? He entered into heaven itself. He went there. Messiah, Jesus, the Christ. He went there. For what purpose? The, the Greek word is a word, huper. It means he went there on our behalf. He went there for us. He went there to pave the way for us. He went there to open the door to us. He appeared publicly before God. He went to pave the way on our behalf, to make a way for you and I. Now in verse 25, we see the past appearance. The past appearance. Present. It starts present. That's where Jesus is now, right? Where's Jesus right now? He's in heaven. Where? Seated at the right hand of the Father. Doing what? Make an intercession for us. You guys remember the picture of intercession? It's not just prayer. It means He's in my place. He stands in my place. He stands for me. But in order to understand the presence, we also want to consider the past. Look at verse 25. Nor was it to offer Himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not His own. For then He would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. It begins with a contrast. Look what He's saying. He, Jesus, didn't offer Himself repeatedly like the priest had to do then. There was a continual repeat. Wash, rinse, repeat. Right? This was continually going on. (coughs) Repeated offerings and substitutes are being replaced for a once-for-all offering, a once-for-all substitute. That's the contrast. What's the cleansing? Look what it said. It has redeemed us in a moment of time. Look what it says. He says, For He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, at the end of time. He has Made his appearance. Now this word appear means to make known. He has made known. He has come at the end of time to make known. The way is being made known. It has been made known that he has appeared at the end of time. This is it. This is the last age. There's not another age to come. That's why the Bible calls this over and over again the last days. The last days. The last Days. This is it. This is the age. This is the age of the Messiah. The age of redemption. And so this cleansing happened in a moment in time. And He, Jesus Christ, has made it known. It also reveals the center of God's plan. The center of God's eternal plan. This was always God's purpose. This is not plan B. God doesn't have one of those. It says at the end of the ages, this was a precise moment in which God sent His Son. And it also resulted in what? It resulted in a personal sacrifice. He sacrificed Himself. Not the blood of bulls and goats. 
Not some other substitute. God could have pointed a hundred different ways. But that's not what He did. He, Yahweh, Yide. God provided Himself, the Lamb. He gave us the illustration, but He fulfilled it Himself. God Himself. It was a personal sacrifice. It's personal. <clears throat> and it removed the problem of sin. It put away sin. Look at it again. For, uh, But as it is, He has appeared once for all, complete, at the end of the age, to do what? Put away sin. How? By the sacrifice of Himself. He gave Himself. That's what He did in the past. That's a past appearance. He made known His present appearance. He declared openly. He declared openly before God. He showed that way. He has put away the problem. To put away sin. He has put away the problem. Literally, that word put away means to cancel. He has canceled it. He has, he has canceled uh, the penalty and the power of sin. It's going to come up as we... Hopefully, as we wrap it all up, it'll make sense in your mind. But he's canceled it. In order for us to understand that, I just want you to take a deep breath and turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. And we're going to look at what Romans chapter 6 tells us about the cancellation of the penalty and the power of sin in our lives. <clears throat> in Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 11, says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passion. And do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you. I don't, I don't got to argue it, I just got to read it. Remember we, start, we started in the beginning, we talked just briefly about the blood of Jesus Christ Speaking greater things than the blood of Abel. Remember? Do you remember what God said to Cain? Cain, before he had murdered his brother, before he had killed his brother, God went to Cain and said, Cain, if you do right, won't you also be accepted? Sin is at the door. And it, sin's desire, is to reign or rule over you. But you should rule over it. Cain made his decision. We all know the story. But what Romans 6 is laying out for us is the believer, sin has no power. It doesn't mean that sin does it, that we do not allow sin to reign. But the same words, right? Let not sin reign means there's a choice to be made there. Are you going to let sin reign? Or are you going to put sin in its rightful place? For sin has no dominion. 
It's not over you. It's not in charge of you. You don't have to sin. I'm not saying you'll ever reach sinless perfection. But you, with Christ, do not have to. You do not have to sin. You do not have to fall. Because you are not under the law. You are under grace. What is grace? Unmerited favor of God. The empowerment of God in our lives. By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves for the one to whom you obey? Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. You pick. I pick. Do not let sin reign. Jesus Christ, by His death, resurrection, the blood of Jesus Christ, it sets me free from the power. We just sang a song. We either set free or we ain't. The word, we say the words, that's the easy part. You got the easy part over with. Hey, that's good. It doesn't make it less true if I choose not to walk in what God has provided for me. He lays out for us also, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity, (coughs) to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. I give myself to Christ, sanctification happens. John shared a story about the soils, right? We call it the, po- the, the, the par- parable of the sower. It's really a parable of soil. Seed is the same. Nothing wrong with the seed. It goes to four different soils. Three of them don't produce fruit. One of them does. Which soil are you? Three of them don't produce fruit. One of them does. The one that does is fruitful. The scripture in in Romans 6 says that that fruitfulness occurs as we present ourselves as slaves of righteousness. Lord, I'm your slave. I bow to knee to Jesus Christ. That's the only one I bow my knee to. I bow my knee to Jesus. Everything else falls after that. I don't care who says what. I don't care what Fox says or CNN or MSNBC, I don't care what famous guy got up and said one thing or another, or, or what people hate what he said, or it doesn't matter. What Jesus said, that's what I do. I follow Jesus Christ. I, I have made my decision, my choice. I'm presenting myself to Him. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Listen, verse 21, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things which, in which you are now ashamed? There's no fruitfulness in all those other soils. There's no fruitfulness apart from Christ. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me, you bear fruit. Period. We don't got to make it complicated. You want the solution? Abide in Christ. If you abide in Christ, you know what happens? Fruit happens. You will bear forth fruit. Which soil does that make you? The fourth soil, the soil that came back, uh, what is it, 10, 30, and 100? 30, 60, and 100. 30, 60, and 100. So I, that's why i got to have you, John. you got to keep me straight. 30, 60, and 100. I figure if i got anything, I'm good. So, 
36 under there's fruitfulness. How does that fruitfulness occur? By abiding in Christ. By abiding in Him. For the end of those things is death. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification. What does that mean? When I'm a slave of Jesus Christ, my life changes. Period. You got hit by a truck. We've been talking about that, right? If somebody comes up to you and says, yeah, I got hit by a truck, but he looks just fine, you can come up with the idea you didn't get hit by nothing. Somebody comes up to you all mangled and says, I got hit by a truck. You go, yeah, bro, you look like you got hit by a truck. That's what life with Jesus Christ is supposed to be like. Right? That's how that's supposed to look, man. The reality is that if if I'm a slave of Jesus Christ, I'm abiding in the vine, fruit happens, that fruit equals sanctification, which means my life changes. Period. Period. It leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus our Lord. Man, that's... That's what he's talking about, that, that, that Jesus Christ has wrought for us. He put it away. Sin doesn't have to have the juice in my life anymore. Whatever juice sin has now, I gave it. But Jesus Christ broke the bonds. I don't have to stay chained. I've been set free. Whatever chains are on me today are chains of my own making And I can take them off anytime. Because Jesus Christ, by His blood, has given the power to overcome. To put it away. To be set free. New life. Changes have come. So what's the consequence of all of that? Look at the section of Scripture. Now we look at Hebrews 9.27. For just as is it appointed for man to die once and after that, Judgment. Just as it is appointed for man to die once. What's he saying? This is a, a, a proverbial saying. A lot of people trip themselves up when they study the Proverbs. Because they think that a proverb equals promise. A proverb doesn't equal promise. A proverb is a wisdom saying. Pithy, usually. Wisdom Saying, these are things that we want to apply in our life. Not a promise. Has every man died? Come on, some of you smart guys have already figured out two people that didn't die. Right? We don't got to go very far in the book of Genesis before we run into the first one. The Bible says that Enoch was, I don't remember his age, 65 years, I think. Enoch was 65 years old, and he thought everything was great in his life, and then he had children. You think I'm crazy, you look at it. Enoch was 65, and he had a son. And the next thing it says, Enoch walked with God. Because once you have kids, you realize, I'm going to mess this one up, God, if I don't have you. If God's not in my life, man, God was not ruling and reigning in my life when my kids were little. I'm thankful they don't remember none of that. Because it was like, Mack truck, remember? It was way different. Thank God those days are gone. But what's the point? What's he saying? What is the point he's making? 
Just as we understand that death is inevitable, right? For most of us, death is inevitable. We're okay with that? So is judgment. That judgment is more inevitable than death. Because you may not all die, but you will all be judged. You will all stand before the God of the universe. And when you stand before the God of the universe, when that occurs, you're not pulling wool over His eyes. There is just a reality laid bare between you and God. This is what it means, this concept of wants to die. 1 Corinthians 15.22 For as in Adam, how many die? All. As in Adam, all die. So in Christ, all will be made alive. And we are all born dead. We're dead men walking. But Christ, He made me alive. That's what it says in Ephesians chapter 2. I thank God. He makes me alive again. So once to die. What judgments are we talking about? There's two judgments. There's a judgment for a believer and a judgment for an unbeliever. The judgment for the believer, 2 Corinthians verse 5 or chapter 5 verse 10 says for we must all appear. What did I say? For we must all we all are going everybody we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You, me, every believer will stand before God. We'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. For the believer, we stand before the judgment seat, also called the Bema seat judgment. It's a judgment of mercy. We stand before God, not a question of salvation, but a question of what you do with the salvation I gave you. What'd you do with the life I gave you? How'd you spend it? What'd you do with the opportunities that I gave you? How'd you spend those? It'll be a day of accounting before Jesus Christ. So I'm going to stand on that day looking into the face of the one who gave immeasurably above and beyond anything I can begin to even understand. Just in the incarnation of God becoming a man blows my mind. If that's not enough, then he also made himself obedient, even obedient to the point of death. He died personally for me. I'm going to look in his eyes and he's going to judge me. My work. It's going to happen once. And I get to live one life. In order. That that day. May have some measure. Of joy. One life. I live. Looking. But just as all men will die. All men will be judged. The believer. Stands there. Now if it's a bad day. And I somehow got to the Lord, you know, I, right before I died, I called on the name of the Lord, and He, in His mercy and grace, saved me. And I stand there, at the end of the day, I'm still saved. The Bible says, there will be many in that day that will be saved and smell like smoke. The Scripture says, they will be saved 
though as by fire. They pass through the fire and everything's burned up, but what remains is eternal life. Now, a lot of times people say, well, what's, what's the big deal then? If I, if I got it, I got it. You better make sure which soil you are. Brother and sister, make sure which soil you are. Don't play games with salvation. Don't play games with it. Are you choked out because that had no fruit? There was no life there. Did you spring up and burn away? That has no life. That's gone. Did you just fall on rocky soil and it never penetrated? But did you bear fruit? How did I bear fruit? By being abiding in Christ. When I abide in Christ, what happens? My life was hit by a truck. He changed me. I've been sanctified. There's fruitfulness. I didn't really do anything. Jesus did it all because I have a relationship with Him. That's got to be real. Not some, you know, yeah, you know, when I was three, I asked Jesus to be in my heart, but I never one time thought about Him the rest of my life. Look, I don't know if that person's okay. I don't want to be that person. I'm just telling you, you shouldn't, that shouldn't be your goal. Because as I read the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, I believe the church is standing before her king. We're all going to turn around and we're going to look in the midst of the throne. And we're going to see in the midst of the throne the lamb as though it had been slaughtered. We're going to look at Jesus in that moment. And at the Bema Seat Judgment, the Scripture tells us He's going to give us crowns. Various crowns that we're going to receive for the things that we did for Him on earth. Whatever we did for Him. And on that moment, in that time, in this incredible moment of worship, for all of eternity, that one moment, that one time, we're going to be looking at the Lamb as though it had been slaughtered. And the Bible says that we're all going to fall on our face. And in that moment, we're going to realize everything I have is His. And the Bible says, I'm going to cast my crowns at His feet. Now on that day, I don't want to be looking around saying, I'm just glad I got here. On that day, I want to have something to give. I want to have something to lay down. I want to have something to throw out to show my worthiness of Him. How worth His worth in my worship. And the real key to showing the worthiness of God in our worship is simply not in how well you sing a song, but in how well you live a life. So we see the judgment for believers. What about unbelievers? Just like men will die, every man will be judged. What about unbelievers? We see that judgment in Revelation 20. Revelation 20 verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, And from His presence, earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. They were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. The result... Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the Lamb's book of life, he was thrown in to the lake of fire. It is appointed unto man once to die, and then judgment. But everyone will stand before God, believers and unbelievers. The inevitable fact, the consequence of what Jesus Christ has done, 
Not only does it give salvation, but there will be judgment. There will be a judgment. So what's the conclusion of it all? Last verse. Verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. What is, what is it that He has done? What is the conclusion? Well, first we see, so Christ, having been offered, past tense, it's, it's a word, that word offered is used of a prayer to God. Something that we, we give unto God. So when, when the Scripture says Christ, or Messiah, has been offered, He has given Himself, He came, everything He came to do, Jesus said, I did for my Father. I, I did for Him. I, I always do the things which please my Father. I always say the things which please my Father, even in offering Himself for the sin of mankind. It was an offering to God, fulfilling His will. His mission was to die for us. To bear the sins of, again, this definite article before many. To bear the sins of the many. Who are the many? The many are all who believe. We talked about it in Matthew 20, 28 gives us another picture of it. Matthew 20, 28 says, Even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. Okay, as a ransom for many. People ask all the time, Jesus died for the whole world? Jesus died just for a few? <clears throat> How does this all work out? The Bible says He dies for many. He gives Himself a ransom for many. He gives Himself a ransom for all. The answer, guys, is in Greek prepositions. I won't bore you with that. I'll just tell you what the Greek prepositions mean. In <clears throat> Matthew twenty twenty eight, it says, Even as the Son of Man came not to serve... Uh, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life, see the word, little word, as, you see it? Okay, that word, as, means, it's the word in Greek, anti. But remember, anti is not against, anti is, carries along in Greek, the idea of pseudo, or in place of. He gave himself in the stead of. He gave Himself in the stead of. First Timothy 2.6 it says, Who gave Himself as a ransom for all. Which is the testimony given at the proper time. Again, the answer is in the Greek preposition. Who gave Himself, you see the word? As. Well now that word as is not the word anti. Now that word as is the word who pair. Who pair means... On behalf of. On behalf of. He gave Himself as a ransom on behalf of all. Remember I told you in the beginning, at the Day of Atonement, there was an offering that was an offering for all the nation. But each person was responsible for applying that offering in a personal way by bringing their own Offering, They showed that they were following this concept. The blood of Jesus Christ, His death, was for all. What's that mean? It is sufficient for all the world. He died as a propitiation, a substitute for all the world. That's what the Bible says. He died. He was a substitute, a propitiation for all the world. But for whom is it efficacious? 
For whom does it actually accomplish something? He died on behalf of all, but in the stead of all who believe. In the stead of believers. On behalf of all the world, in the stead of believers. What does that mean? He's a propitiation for all the world, but he's the reality for those who believe. Means his blood is sufficient, but it is only efficient for those who believe. Does it make sense? His blood is sufficient, but it is only efficient. It is only efficacious to those who believe. First Peter two twenty four. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed, made whole. He has accomplished something. He has accomplished something. And I just want you to see Christ having offered Himself once to bear the sins of many, all who will believe, (laughs) will appear a second time. What does that mean? Jesus said, if I go, I will come again. I haven't left you orphans. I will come again. This is the future appearance. This is the future appearance. This word appear, it says He will appear a second time. That word is a Greek word from which we get the op, op, how do you say that? optometrist? It's ophthalmology. Yeah, that's closer to the word. Opto, I won't even try to say it. But it sounds like ophthalmology. It means to see with your eyes. To see with your eyes. This one, this appear. The, the, the future appearance. He's going to appear unto them who, what's it say? Eagerly wait. He's going to appear to them who thought about him once 37 years ago and haven't had another... Is that what it says? What's it say? He's appearing to those who are eagerly waiting for him. He's appearing to those... They're going to see him. They're going to see his face. Why? Because they're the good soil. They're the one where fruit came. How did it come? Because they worked so hard at it? No. What happened? They abide where? In Christ. And if you abide in me, Jesus said, you will... Bear fruit. The scripture goes on to say, for without me, you can do nothing. It's all about being in Christ. What's the purpose? Last thing, what's the purpose? He's going to appear to them, but why? Not to deal with sin. To save. To save. Here's what I want you to get. Wrap your mind around the idea of salvation. When we talk about salvation, there's three parts. Three parts. Part one, justification. We have been declared right. I'm not right. I've been declared right because of Jesus Christ. I'm not innocent. I'm guilty. They're no innocent. I'm guilty. I'm justified. That is to be declared right, which saves me from the penalty of sin. Saves me from the penalty of sin. But when that occurred, when I put my faith in Jesus Christ, He changed my DNA. Becoming a Christian means that He, God, lives where? In me. My life changed. I'm not the same creature I was before. My DNA changed, so I'm saved from the power of sin. The word for that is sanctification. Justification, sanctification, we're saved from the power of sin. And when Jesus appears, we'll be saved from the presence of sin. That's called glorification. He says, I will come to all those who are eagerly waiting not to 
deal with sin, sin's dealt with once for all. I come to save. That means that the total accomplishment of salvation will be accomplished. You have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. In the presence of God, we look so forward to that moment when Jesus Christ accomplishes it all. So we look for those appearances, the declaration, the comprehension, and ultimately seeing eyes with my eyes, the Lord, as He returns. Sin's been dealt with. He has paved the way. He has declared everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank You so much for this opportunity, God, that we have had to open Your Word, to to jump into Scripture, Lord. I pray that we would just come to really understand and comprehend all that is wrought in our High Priest. Because not only is He the High Priest, He's also the sacrifice, He's also the King, He's also God in the flesh, He's everything that we need. He is superior to everything we can imagine, and He has literally accomplished something. He provided Himself as a propitiation, a substitute for the whole world, so that anyone who believes, anyone who calls on His name, anyone who bows the knee to Jesus Christ, will be saved. And when that happens, we can know that that has happened in our life, because He continues saving us, even in the present tense, sanctifying us. Our lives change. Our DNA is different. And we look forward through this glorious salvation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we look forward to the glorious day when the presence of sin is gone. On that day, on that day when I see Jesus face to face, I will be able to declare, I am right because He made me right. Today it's a future hope. It's a future hope as we look to that glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But as we hold on to that hope, Lord, I pray that we would recognize that we would look to You and declare You are worthy because this is what You have wrought in my life. God, I pray if there's anybody here who doesn't know You, who hasn't bowed the knee, who hasn't received You as their Lord and Savior, God, I pray that they would do so. It's not a difficult concept. It just has to be real. We can't fake it. We can't pretend that it's gone on. We just have to do it in reality. The Bible declares that God commands all men everywhere to repent and believe. That's simple. Repent, turn away from who I am, and turn toward Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that You would, by Your Spirit, work in this place. And even as we close out in worship, God, that You would do that work in the hearts of of men, Even as John shared with us, when the Word of God is, has gone out, when people have the opportunity to respond to the Gospel, Lord, you can work a perfect work in their hearts and lives. Lord, we pray that you would do that in this place as we look to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.